welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. I am here with my dear friend Martha. Martha, you and I have known each other for over a decade, I think. A long, long time. Maybe. A long time. Um, so Martha is a longtime educator here in New York City, uh, specifically in the independent school world. For those of you who are not familiar with the lingo, that means private schools. She's been a director of diversity. She's been head of the middle school, head of school, and recently started her own consulting firm working with boards around the issues of DEI in addition to executive coaching. And we're neighbors, so we see each other at the gym, which is always so fun. So welcome, Martha. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks. I'm really, really excited to be here. I can't wait to get to the Q&A piece. Yeah, let's get to it. So just to remind folks on the phone, uh, we will be opening it up to Q&A. So if you want to throw your questions in the chat as they occur to you, I'll call on you once we get to that portion of the show. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your career and what it's been like for you as a woman of color, particularly in the independent school world, which is very white and very privileged. Yes, this is year 34 for me in New York City Independent Schools. I started out in Manhattan on the Upper East Side for about 10 years and with a couple of years at a, a small school in Harlem. And then I spent almost 25 years now in downtown Brooklyn schools. And to be honest, I didn't think I was gonna make it in independent schools. I, I really thought I'd be there for a little bit, get my master's degree and then move off to public schools. And the reason was because in the 80s, the, the independent schools in, in Manhattan were even more highly segregated by race and class. And I won't just say in Manhattan, this is independent schools across the country than they are right now. I used to joke uh, and sing and say that my theme song was that little song from Sesame Street, or maybe it was the electric company. One of these things is not like, like the, the other. other. Yeah. <laughs> these things just doesn't belong. That was what it felt like to be me mm -hmm. as black woman in independent schools in the eighties and still sums it up today, right? And mm -hmm. the further I got in leadership in independent schools, the, the more that held true. So there are probably people out there feeling like, so why would you stay right. if that's the case? And there were two compelling reasons. One was making a place for myself and for others like me, for those students and children of color who were suffering in a powerfully white, uh, blatantly and powerfully white space. Mm -hmm. um, and the other compelling reason was being there for those white students whose only interaction with black people were those in service roles in their lives, their nannies, their cooks, their servants. I would say doormen, but I don't even think black people were doormen back then because it was probably way too visible a job for a black person. So as I grew up as a teacher in independent schools, I was really able to create a space for myself, forming my own affinity groups before affinity groups was a thing. And just finding, you know, there was this older group of women of color who welcomed me, who I would see at conferences and every now and then who sort of literally would bring me in and hug me and say, we're stick in this, we're in here with you. I knew where they were if I ever needed them. Navigating predominantly white schools was then and is still now a really heavy load for people yeah. of color. And I will say for folks who haven't seen, the New York Times just published a piece two days ago about elite New York City girls schools and their alumni uh, coming out about all of the anti-Black racism that they faced at 
Chapin spends in Burley, but you're saying this is just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, it's everywhere because I'm a consultant now getting calls from all over the country about schools grappling with this exact same thing. Alumni flooding in with these painful, traumatic stories. And I have to say, they're the stories that I remember when I was starting out in independent schools, right? Uh, little black girls getting their hair touched in the 80s and little black boys being told that their brown skin meant that they were dirty. The same stories happen now, right? For black women in predominantly white schools, we still have to think about how we wear our hair and the messages that sends. Are we being too loud? Are we being too ethnic? Are we doing anything to attract the sexual advances or stares or comments that we get? Are we too light? Are we too dark? How much armor do we need to put on before we enter that school building every day? Yeah. I mean, I will say, I spoke about this last week, which is running an organization like Breakthrough New York, which was focused on creating opportunities for kids of color. The standard of success was like, could they get into these very elite independent schools, elite colleges that were predominantly white? And I guess I'm just really struggling with my own question of to what extent was I opening up opportunities at the sacrifice of my students' well-being? And I know what the answer is. I'm still wrestling with it. Mm -hmm. I still wrestle with that. Because they also received a fantastic education and got great opportunities, right? So I put my own three daughters through the independent schools because, frankly, it felt like the lesser of two evils, right? The, the public schools where I lived, then it was predominantly Black, not so much anymore. I would never be able to put my children in the schools that were in my neighborhood. It just felt like the level of care, access to materials and resources and teachers who were well-paid and excited about what they were doing, I could not do that with my children, even though on principle, to, I wanted to be able to say I could. Right. It's a hard line that we walk. Let me just ask you the million dollar question that everybody on the line probably wants to know about. So you work primarily with a lot of boards. And I think that these are boards who are kind of like the elite of the elite. These are boards that are on the boards of elite independent schools in New York City. So it's like the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And what I've noticed in the nonprofit world is that oftentimes the staff is much further along on their DEI journey than boards tend to be. So my question is, where do you even begin with boards to get them on this sort of awareness of being on this DEI journey? Yeah, we begin with, first of all, admitting and acknowledging that boards need anti-racism and DEI training, which for some boards is a step, right? Up until very recently, most independent school boards Board training on DEI was tolerated every several years. It couldn't be too touchy-feely, which was code for we don't want to feel uh, anti-bias um, too much in our faces. Right. right? We don't want to be uncomfortable. Right. right. It couldn't be uncomfortable. It couldn't be too personal. It was only seen as valid if it, were, if it had a scientific basis or there was some data we were going to look at together. We can't say things like white supremacist. <laughs> Absolutely not. We can say white right. back then because right. it would make, make trustees feeling, it would leave them feeling frightened or angry or defensive right. or put upon in some way. The space between what faculty and staff were doing in DEI trainings, where we were looking at all cultural identifiers, race and class and sexual orientation and gender, et cetera, mm -hmm. and boards were getting in terms of training, the difference was night and day, right? And faculty got way out ahead 
right. in a lot of cases in most of the schools. But the race was on toward awareness of DEI um, was sort of a light serving of privilege on the side. <laughs> and it was still very polite and very much packaged to make space for white people to slowly get on board, right? right. And boards were left to fall behind in this. Yeah. So how did you do that? I mean, it, it sounds like there were kind of incremental wins along the way, but I'm just wondering, like, do you think that the environment has changed now in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the sort of burgeoning racial awareness that folks are having in a more common space? Ask me that question in a few months. And I mm -hmm. say that because right now I, I'm afraid to open my email because there are so many new requests from clients. Right. And so many people saying, we've got to do this with my board. I have to do this with my board, heads of school. And we haven't gotten into that yet. So what I think is there's a desire and a hunger and a panic right now about getting on board and getting this training and bringing boards up to speed. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll see what that feels like when the work really starts happening, right? There's right. desire for it, but I, I'm not sure that many trustees know what that is. And I found in my work that... I have to start at the very beginning with boards, right? What's the rationale for thinking about strategic anti-racism at the board level? What's some common language that we should all know? Because often, especially white people, have not had explicit education about the difference between equality and equity, for example. Mm -hmm. What we mean by anti-racism, or what is whiteness and white supremacy culture? Mm -hmm. Right. These are folks who really, so at, there's a vocab sheet where we look at the definitions together mm -hmm. and we relate them to our roles and our tasks as part of the board mm -hmm. um, so that we are establishing a common language. And then we can get to the work of maybe practicing how to even talk about race. Right. Because there are lots of obstacles to that as well. Get into the more strategic work. So I'm wondering, like, as a leader thinking about doing this work, is it often the head of school that prompts this? Is it the board chair? Like, who kind of leads this and what kind of buy-in do you need in order to engage in, like, really uncomfortable work? Well, it's interesting because the head of school and the board chair work, like, in a marriage, almost. There's, the board is technically the head's boss, but there's a lot of managing up that has to happen, right? A lot of leading and explaining what's happening at the operational level in the school and informing trustees so they can be ambassadors and understand what's happening and show their love to the school everywhere they go. It's a back and forth. And I would say there's, there's pushing that comes from the head based on what's happening in the school community. Or there's something awful that happens that lands a school in the newspaper and that all of a sudden we don't have to have the rationale, right? It's like, all right, we got to do this and we got to do this now. So have you ever had a case where there are folks on the board who are just like not going to get on board with it? And if so, like, how do you deal with that as either a head of school or a board chair? I'm smiling because when anti-racism doesn't feel so urgent, there are all kinds of decisions and choices that get made there that, um, that I think were probably the hardest part of being a black female head of school. And at the time I was a head of school, I was the only black female head of school in the whole city. I wasn't the only person of color, but I was the only black female head of school. And I, my line has always been, our school mission is what guides us, right? And there have to be hooks in that mission 
that say anti-racism is an absolute, and mo most of us don't have the words anti-racism anywhere in our missions, because that feels a little bit too political or radical or whatever words you want to use for it. So oh, I had to, as a head, be constantly translating that connection, right? And I mostly use words like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not anti-racism, because there's an appetite and a muscle that has to get built in the school and with trustees for even the language, right? You've got to sort of pave the way and get folks there because a lot of us don't have any education about this. So I say when there's somebody who says, first of all, I've never met anyone who says they want to be racist out loud. <laughs> Right. So it's, you can't right. just draw that line and say, oh, OK, then you're not a trustee and we're kicking you out of the school. But my line has always been, this isn't the right place for you. Then I respect that. And we should talk about an exit plan. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about helping trustees to understand the work of racial equity is the work as opposed to a nice like side dish of we're going to do this once in a while. I'm wondering if you can give us any more actionable things. So you talked a lot about having the conversation and couching it in a way that feels palatable and digestible. Anything else that you do? Yeah, and none of that is the strategic work, right? And the strategic work is the point of the board. They are for governance. That's, they are all about policies, procedures, strategies, systems. That's the board's job. So it's really easy to say to them, okay, here's your job. It's not as easy to get them to understand what the action items look like. So uh, in some of the work that I do, I have to present continua where you put your board or your board committee, finance, audit, whatever the committee is, on a continuum that starts at one where you're really racist and it's exclusive and you're open about it and saying, yep, this is who we are. And on step six of the continuum, you are fully anti-racist and equitable and inclusive. And there are actual descriptors that go under these categories. Your finance committee uses the same good old boys policies and you hire the same predominantly white owned vendors for everything you do. At step six, it would look like we're aware of the fact we have done the work of expanding our list of vendors. We make sure there are women-owned and Black-owned and people of color-owned businesses that we're doing business with, right? So it's making it that clear for board members by committee what their work should look like, having them place themselves on that continuum. And then the next step after you look in the mirror and you say, yeah, we're really here, is, okay, what actions are going to take us to the next level? And that's how you come up with your yearly goals and objectives on, on the board committee. So it's active work. That's really, really helpful. I guess I'm wondering, how important is it that each individual member is willing to do their own personal work of interrogating themselves and their experience of whiteness? Because I feel like when I think about my board, there are definitely people who are like down for the cause and we're like, okay, like I'm down to do the work. And others were like, not trying to do that work. But I guess I'm wondering, like, can you still move the board along if not everyone is on that bus? Yes, a hundred percent. And if you have trustees who are not on that bus, they should not be trustees. And that is something you should say out loud in your, as you're nominating folks, you should say out loud as you're orienting new board members, you should say out loud to the whole community about how your board operates, that this is on an individual level, right? Being anti-racist. There's the, so I also ask trustees to put themselves on a continuum, right? How aware and ready 
and knowledgeable are you about anti-racism work? And then what is it going to take to get you to the next level? And how can we support you, right? That's how you figure out what trainings your board needs by having people as individuals say, here's where I am and here's what I need. Then there's the team level. And that, that I think about as the committee level work and getting very specific about what that looks like. And then there's an institutional level, looking at policies and procedures. What do your bylaws say? Are there things in those bylaws that keep you from nominating more people of color, right? I was on a board where the rule was that it, it was not a, a school board, but a, an association for schools. And the rule in the bylaws was that we only nominate heads. Well, guess what? If all the heads in New York City or almost all of them are white, guess what your board's going to look like? So get to that bylaw and fix that because you're never gonna be able to do this work if you're not actually looking at the structural obstacles and, and the ways racism have been built into those structures. Okay, so I'm gonna ask kind of an obvious question and it's pretty specific to the independent school world, but like how did they thread the needle between wanting to be anti-racist and also understanding that like the very structures of independent schools was built on the premise of not wanting to be integrated? Yeah, and this is the conversation that people are beginning in a really deeper, more meaningful way right now, right? And I, I get this question in every workshop that I do with a faculty and staff. Yeah, I hear this and I'm in, but the whole purpose of an independent school was to be exclusive, right? And they were built for white people to escape having to have their kids in schools with people of color. So what does that mean for our work now? And we could throw our hands up and go, you're right. And I'll just say, there's nothing we can do about it. Or we can model for the kids we're teaching and the families in our care, what it means to admit that, acknowledge it, say it out loud, and then actually interrupt as much as you can of that. Are our schools gonna be completely anti-racist? And is everybody gonna, who walks in the door gonna feel total ownership? Probably not. But do we wanna open up access so that more people do have full ownership and are seen and heard and respected as full human beings in the community with a voice? Yeah, we do. And it feels like so much of this has to be driven by people who are willing to be courageous and willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start calling on folks. I'm sure you all have lots of questions. So if you have a question, feel free to throw it in the chat and I will call on you. But I have a really juicy one coming in from Mr. Morty Ballin. Morty, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Hi, Martha. Hey, Rhea. Hey. How are you? It's nice to see you guys. And thank you so much for this topic. This is so important and I appreciate the space. My question, I guess, is I think board members can say we are in the role of governance and not management. And our role is to sort of hold management accountable to their activities. And a, a potential smokescreen could be, why should we do the individual work? We're not on the ground. We're, our job is to maintain sort of this sort of objective distance. Why would I personally sort of do the work myself as a board member? Doesn't that conflict with the definition of governance? So just curious mm -hmm. if... That's a really good question. And to that, I would say that anti-racism work best, and you can look at lots of studies and data on this if you'd like, if you're really going at it at the different levels, the individual, the group, and the institutional, right? And as individual board members, we ask board members all the time to be ambassadors for our school. That means being a role model and stepping up and saying, we're doing anti-racism training as a group. 
here's why, here's how it connects to the mission of the school, and here is our expectation that everyone else in the community is doing this work. I think right now, white people specifically, especially white trustees, have this golden opportunity to step up and model being a learner and a person who is maybe struggling and grappling, but moving along as an anti-racist. It's a great signal to other white people who might be feeling like, ah, this feels big. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know enough to make it okay for them to do that, get over it, and then get in there and start doing the work. Yeah, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. You're welcome. I have another question for you. And again, I want to encourage folks in the call to throw in your questions in the chat. But what we didn't talk about, which I think is pretty critical, is the complexity of race, class, and power. And so your board, presumably, is much more resourced and responsible for the financial well-being of the schools. They have a lot of money, and they have a lot of power, and they have actual positional authority over you. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you engage in these conversations when it's incredibly murky to kind of disaggregate all of these different it's really tricky, and I think the, the um, answer is education, right? To provide plenty of professional development opportunities for the board to learn about class and to learn about race and racism and to have conversations together about it as a, reg a part of their regular operation and to have like a rubric of questions that we're asking ourselves if we're having a conversation about financial aid policy. There has to be a conversation about class and about race and class together. And you have to open up space and give board members language to talk about that, or they're not, they're frankly not doing their jobs well in alignment with the mission of the school, right? Every school now has some language in their missions about diversity, equity, inclusion, graduating globally minded, you know, citizens of the world, right? We've all got this language. Well, that actually means that there's some pointed work that we should be able to point to at every level of the school, including the board, in order to say we're doing that. And another follow-up question for me, how do we address the issue of tokenism? Boards in general, I'm thinking about my nonprofit yeah. boards, but, but school boards, certainly. I mean, it's usually the dynamic I've seen has been like predominantly white, maybe a couple of Asians and like one or two black people. And it's like, oh, we're diverse on paper. And like, yay, us. Uh-huh. You say it out loud, and you make that a part of the conversation. So part of the, the training that I do with boards is looking at board composition and saying out loud who's in there and who's not, right? <laughs> whose voices do we hear and whose don't we hear? Who is in a position uh, that, with even more power on the board because maybe you're a chair or you're on the executive committee and who is not? And why is that? How do we nominate people? Are we nominating our, our friends? Are, are we looking for people who can write big checks? The answer is yes, that's a reality in independent schools. They wouldn't exist without that fundraising. And can we make space for some socioeconomic diversity? And then again, look at the bylaws. Is there anything in there that says you have to be able to contribute at least this much amount? Because if that's the case, then you're actually throwing obstacles up to exactly what you say you're trying to do as a community, right? That's not equity. I have a really good question coming in from Amy. Amy, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Hi, thanks for organizing this. So one of our 
nominating committee is very open diversifying the board but what we found is historically this school hasn't done the best job of engaging alumni of color so we've started conversations over the last couple of years um but haven't really settled on how to do that and as a way of getting people involved who maybe traditionally hadn't felt included yeah i think that door is opening right now with the outcry of alum of color all over the country how are we engaging them now in that conversation, right? You, we've got to listen. We've got to prove that we've listened. We've got to partner. And in order to do that, you have to acknowledge the harm and the trauma. And you have to show how you're actively working now to understand this and to create some action steps so that the next generations of alumni of color are not saying the same thing. You invite people into the conversation and the actual work, I think. And it's hard, right? And I don't think you have to have admin of color doing this, right? It's great if you do, certainly. But I think as, as white folk in schools leaders, to reach out to alum and say, listen, I hear you, I see this, I'm sorry, What's next? Here's how I'd like to partner with you, right? Without expecting those alum of color to come in and tell you how to fix stuff, right? Uh, alum of color, the last thing they want right now is for people to say, tell us what to do, please. Tell me what your plan is. Invite me to be a partner in that with you. Empower me to use my voice to help this work move forward. And I think alum of color can certainly be recruited to boards. So often as a student of color in an independent school, my experience was having these like microaggressions or overt <laughs> aggressions happening and feeling like, did I imagine this? Like, is it me having this be a very gaslighty situation? Particularly, I think, you know, I went to high school in the 90s. So I think our idea of what diversity meant was like, we don't see color. <laughs> We're right. all the same. And as a kid of color who felt very different, like you start to question yourself, like, is it me? It must be me because everyone else feels like everything is hunky-dory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm afraid that is still the story for a lot of people of color in independent schools. Yeah. And I'm a trustee. I have been a trustee in independent schools. Um, I just joined the board again. And so I'm anxious to see what my experience will be on this board. I think the climate and the conversation now is very different than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And I know that in the past, acting as trustee, I very much felt like there's no way I'm going to use my voice fully in this group. I'm one of one or one of a couple. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be everybody's teacher. And I don't want to be the one who makes everybody uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. And I have to say, as someone who has also sat on predominantly white boards, I very much felt like I became like the loud Asian woman who was like pounding on tables and making everyone uncomfortable. And it would have been really helpful to have other folks, particularly the ones with the most authority and power back me up. This is where I feel like we have a lot of power to change how boards look and operate, right? And I'm not saying boards need to be predominantly people of color. I'm saying boards need to have white people who are actually bringing some skills and tools and knowledge about anti-racism, right? White people who actually lead through an anti-racist lens and who, and who are no bones about that. That's what we need. A question this person is holding is whether you have any suggestions for when a person with significant structural power, say a chair of the board, 
is a person of color who does not seem fully aligned with the staff's commitment to doing organizational wide anti-oppression slash racial justice work and the particular challenges that can arise if a white staff person is asking a person of color to support anti-oppression work at a deeper level than a board member of color seems to want the organization to do. This ties into we're not all coming to this from the same place, just as white people are not, people of color are not, right? So if you are trying to pump up your board with some folks of color because you expect them to fill a role, right, to help push this work forward, to be a voice, to be a teacher, that is a really poor assumption. You're, you should be looking to nominate board members who all come with a level of expertise in this area. If that's in the same way that you're sometimes looking for somebody who's got some architecture experience because there's a new space building project coming up. You think about what you need for your board and you look for people who are gonna fill those. And you have a set of criteria that you're using to nominate and to bring new board members on without the assumption that everybody of color is gonna be coming from the same place. That is an unfair expectation. Someone once said this to me, and I think it's resonated so much, which is skin folk are not necessarily kin folk. Yeah, I, yep. like, I know that expression. She said it to me and I was like, yes, that's brilliant. Yes, so, and, and we all carry our own experiences, right? The way we all internalize, we are all breathing the air of racism, all of us. And we have developed different ways of moving through the world in order to navigate that. So no judgment, right? It's about this is what racism has done to us all and harmed us all. Mm -hmm. So we can't make assumptions about where we are. And I often think about like the stages of becoming anti-racist, like the seven stages of grief. Like first you have to acknowledge that it's there, right? And then you like move through these periods of like, and then you feel like intense despair because you're like, oh my God, like all of this water is wet and I've been a you know goldfish this whole time and I didn't know and then <laughs> and like then you sort of move through that and hopefully end up at anti-racist. Would you yes. say that that's a fair characterization? It is and there are graphs and charts that show you this right racial identity development theory is different for every racial group and and yet there are stages that and there's some, some, some parallels there that people go through in a lifetime and understanding that is really important in order to gauge what people are bringing as individuals have give people some space to figure out where they are mm -hmm. in that, on that spectrum in their development and acknowledge it because it's really hard to actually move forward if you're not even sure where you're beginning. Like, this is where I am right now. How would you expect to be moving forward? That would feel amorphous and just weird, right? Yeah, we need a framework. So let me ask you this. Say I'm listening on the call. I'm like, Martha, yes, I am so there with you. I can't afford an outside consultant to do this. Where do you begin? Like, would you recommend having a committee on your board? Would you recommend starting with a couple of board members? Like, where, where do you start? If I want to be board specific, I would say creating a committee without any groundwork with the whole board is not a great way to go. Right. There are lots of boards that have, and, and this started many years ago, creating a diversity committee or a DEI committee or whatever. I haven't heard of an anti-racism committee yet. Maybe that'll change. And the committees would get together and get into the room for the meeting and feel like, what next? Right. What is this work that this committee does? We educating ourselves? Are we educating the board? Are we checking up on what's happening in the diversity world in the school, which is what most of those committees get really caught up in the weeds of, which is actually not governance and not where a board should be. 
So I would say educate yourselves, right? If you can't afford a speaker or a workshop or a, there are tons of resources, books you can read, mandatory reading and a group discussion about a book. There are podcasts you can listen to if everybody can't commit to reading a whole book. There are articles you can read, sections of articles, the specific information about board work on anti-racism that you can get your hands on and grapple with as a committee and just begin the conversation and the learning within your group for free. And I just do want to let folks know that we will make this recording available via my podcast and we're going to get all of your favorite resources as well, Martha, to share with the folks on the call and, and more broadly. Um, let me ask this, as a board, if you're doing the work, how do you then relate to the staff and then students in the case of schools or your clients? Like what's the relationship between all three things and like how do you communicate across all of the different constituents? Yeah, this is another big, I think, uh, gap for lots of schools that there is no system of communication between those pieces. It's part of the problem. It actually helps to reinforce some of the racist stuff that is a part of the structure of schools. So first, it's just saying that out loud. And then it's asking, what are your systems for communication? And how can you make sure that everybody who's charged with doing this forward movement toward anti-racism has these check-in points and reporting mechanisms to talk about progress, to share about obstacles and challenges, to, so that the entire community, there's a thread of this is a part of what it means to be a member of this community. There's an expectation that I'm involved at one of these levels, and I know how all the parts fit together. I think we're very poor communicators about this. I think we get to be good communicators sometimes when there's a big building project and we need to raise money or we're trying to raise money for endowment or financial aid, and we can message about that really clearly and give everybody a sense of what that work means. But then we stop short of that because I think we're frightened about the structural work around anti-racism. I should say we were really frightened of it and there's more of an appetite for it right now. I'm curious how you might respond around like policy settings. So as a board, they are charged with governance. And I'm thinking about specific policies regarding, for example, financial aid or admissions or recruitment of new board members or faculty hiring. And so I guess I'm wondering like, who gets to decide those things and what's the level of like input and influence between staff level decisions versus board level decisions? Yeah, I think there's a really clear, or there should be if your board is operating at its best, a clear distinction between what is an operational policy and what is sort of a governance policy. And, and it's important to keep those separate so the board stays in its lane and can best support the school. And so the school leadership understands their lane and can best know their responsibility to look at those specific policies. And it's a question of coming up with that rubric I was talking about. What questions are you asking yourselves as you're writing on the operational side, your family handbook or your student handbook or your faculty and staff manual? And then for the board, what questions are you asking yourselves as you're redoing the financial aid policy or the investment policy? And how have you folded anti-racism right into those policies? 
point to the places in them where you can see language and point to examples of how you're using that in your practice, right? Because it's one thing to put it in the bylaws. It's another thing. Do you know the bylaws? Are you operating under the bylaws? You know, Girl, people <laughs> like the bylaws and you don't even look at. Huh, I remember seeing that in print once a long yeah. time. Yeah, I think it's in that binder on that dusty shelf. <laughs> we don't look. Right, but it's, it's bringing that to life because right. those are the structures that either reinforce racism or interrupt it. There's no in between. There's no like, well, it's just there and it doesn't really mean anything. Either it's racist or it's anti-racist, right? That's right. That's there's right. no, there's no, well, we're not racist. That, that there's no it, space for that. There's no neutral <laughs> here. I have a really good question coming in from Marvin. And so, and this is like a little bit of my own pet peeve around directors of diversity. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, in the last, call it 15 years, everyone and their mother is hiring a director of diversity. And I've also seen just as quickly, those folks cycle in and out. And so I guess, Marvin, why don't you unmute yourself and ask it? I think there's a meaty question here. Sure, thank you. And thank you both for facilitating this space. I really appreciate it. My perception of directors of diversity is that sometimes they are given power, but not enough power to affect real change at their institutions. And so I'm wondering sort of how can we reimagine that role so that there's better communication between them and the board, better relationship between them and the board? Your perception is a fact, Marvin, so let's just say that out loud, that some diversity directors are set up very poorly by their schools to not have the power of a a full-time senior level administrator or to be included in that group, but to not really have a voice in that group, to not have control over their own budget. There are ways that you can look at a senior level admin team, and this is some of the structural anti-racism work I would do with a leadership team, show me your job descriptions, right? Let's see who has control of a budget and who doesn't. And let's make sure that there's equity there so that if we're saying everybody has some power on this team to have a voice, then let's make sure we put the structures in place to ensure that. In order for a diversity director to be able to really be an important player on that team, first of all, that person should not be the only voice of everything diversity, equity, or inclusion. Right? That person is a resource and a support for other leaders' leadership of that work in their own areas. So everybody doesn't get to sit back and watch the diversity director sweat it out trying to do everything. Everybody's charged with diversity. So that diversity director might sit with everyone at the beginning and say, let's review together your diversity-related goals and objectives for this year. And let's have, let's put in a structure so that we're reporting back to each other about our progress. And we're reporting out to the rest of the school about our progress, because that kind of modeling is important. I hope that answered your question. I might've just gone off on a tangent. It absolutely does. Thank you. And I just wanted to add that the question really stems from, I see the relationship between the fundraising and development team and the board or the admissions team and the board. And then I see the director of diversity and I'm like, what's going on here? It doesn't seem fair. I'm so glad you brought me back to that. Yes, that is another issue. If you're a senior level administrator, you should have the same as other senior level admin members, a direct relationship with the board, right? There are meetings you attend, you look at equity there. How often is the advancement director in a meeting? How often is the CFO in a meeting? The diversity director should be in just as many meetings. Not that we all need more meetings, but you know what I'm trying to say. 
the, the presence, where you are placing people with the board is in direct relationship with your, the level of importance that you are assigning that role in your school and in alignment with your school's mission. I also wanted to let folks know that Morty Ballin, who is a very experienced educator, is wanting to do some pro bono work around DEI. So Morty, do you want to meet yourself and make the offer? Sure. That's so nice, Rhea, thanks. Learned a ton from you, Rhea, and Martha. Thank you again. I met with you a couple months ago. We talked just about this. No, I am a former CEO and founder of a network of charter schools. And Martha, you said it, like racism is the air we breathe. And it's hard to sort of step out of it because of how we've been socialized. And when it comes to education, and working with adults who are working with kids, it's just foundational that we are exposing the air we breathe and talking about it and what it means to be the best educators that we can be. So I just, as my background as a CEO and a board member, I'm very interested and as a white person, uh, helping being part of efforts to help white people think about racism and in education. I'm just starting to do pro bono work. So if there are folks here who want a thought partner to think through a group reading or what it means to facilitate with a group, a board or senior leaders, I'm very happy to, to help or, or think through. I know that I'd be learning a lot. For now, one thing that we haven't really talked about is students. So in the context of education and schools, we know that young people are really driving us much further and faster than previous generations. And so I guess I'm just wondering, like, as a board, how are you relating to students who are marching and are, like, very socially aware and are asking for action and statements on the part of boards that tend to be much more conservative? Yeah, I think there has to be space created for students to have some direct relating to the board, right? And, and, and I will tell you, it's every board member's favorite meeting are ones where there's a student panel or a couple of students who come to share something or, you know, a videotape of watching students share something they wanted to share with the board. It's a really important way for board members to directly understand the student experience, right? It's a part of their jobs to know this. And it helps, students can push trustees along in ways that adults can't. Uh, right? It was like uh, I was doing some curriculum, DEI curriculum work at a school a while back before it was okay to even knock at the door of curriculum. And I was doing all these workshops and, and faculty were just feeling like, ugh, and people would bring their work to grade in the back and just not into it. Like, we're independent school people and we know exactly what we're doing and we created this curriculum until I brought student voices into it. I made a silly quick videotape of students who graduated talking about what they took away and where they found gaps in their learning when they got to college in ways that embarrassed them or left them feeling like I needed more of this. And you could hear, it was unbelievable. You couldn't hear a pin drop and folks were engaged in a way like never before. So I think students could be a key to really engaging trustees if you have some regular contact where you hear from them. Last question coming in is, so this was from the previous person. I wasn't able to articulate her question well, but the challenge is it feels complex for this person who is white and not the recipient of racism to try to explain to a person of color that the organization needs to do deeper work than they seem able to see or acknowledge or understand. So like as a white person trying to explain to a person of color who may not see it. 
Uh-huh. That's interesting. Uh, that is an interesting quandary. And maybe this simply is simplifying it too much, but either your mission speaks really clearly to why anti-racism at a deeper level is important or it doesn't, right? And, and all independent schools at least have to go through a process of accreditation, those of us who are accredited, where we have to look at our mission statements every few years and we have to ask ourselves, is this still the guiding statement for this community? And how do we need to update it? Maybe schools need to look at that again in light of anti-racism now that we've got some of the language and we're really forced to look at it in the face in a different way. I think the question that brings up for me, Martha, is like, how do you know when to fish or cut bait with people, right? Because there, there has to be a point where someone's like willing to step forward and willing yeah. to like do the work. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you discern the difference between someone who's just like not willing to do it or someone who's just like very tentative about it? Yeah, I think that's where clarifying your mission and your board talking points about why this is important and clarifying the, uh, the goals and the action steps that the board is expected to take is important. And then someone can look at that and go, I'm out. And you have to respect that and say, thank you for saying that out loud and goodbye, right? But if any, if any of that is unclear, it leaves room for people who are naysayers who would, you know, take up two hours of a meeting where you could actually be doing some good work together. I say, don't spend time on that, right? Be clear about what you're doing and then say to people, are you in or are you out? Because we don't have time to convince and try to change people's minds. That's a waste of a lot of energy, right? You say, here's our mission. Here's the board's role in alignment with the mission. Here's how anti-racism needs to happen at the board level. Anybody need to bow out at this point and keep moving? Yeah. And I think to really be courageous and clear in that can feel scary, especially when money is involved, right? Like I can think of some cases and when the person who writes the biggest check may be the naysayer. You're right. And it's important. And that happens in independent schools all over the country. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us cannot be that clear about you're in or you're out Mm -hmm. because the survival of our school depends on that money. And then I say, figure out how to structurally get yourself out of that, Mm -hmm. right? Figure out where the people with money are who believe in anti-racism already. Mm -hmm. Figure out how you're going to change your admissions tours so that people know exactly who you are and people are flooding you because you're so clear about who you are. That's right. Uh, Yes, you might not get some of those families with big pockets who really aren't interested in anti-racism, but do you want those families? Yeah, it it reminds me of something I heard recently, which is not necessarily that it's just marketing, but like good marketing attracts great marketing repels. And you actually want to repel the people who are not your people. What are some of your favorite resources? And I'll make sure to get a list of it to share, but for folks who are just like chomping at the bit, ready to go, what would you recommend? Yeah, some of what I recommend to boards is uh, to get them grounded in the basics is Banaji and Greenwald's Blind Spot. It has the science for those who need to start with the science. And it's all about recognizing your implicit bias. Dolly Shug's The Person You Mean to Be does the same thing with more stories and some data. Jennifer Eberhardt's Biased, Data and Great Stories. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, way more in your face if you've got a board who's ready for that. 
fantastic um, science and stories and everything, right? Real life, meaningful, in your face kind of suggestions about how to be anti-racist. Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, anything by Ta-Nehisi Coates, anything. Read an essay. Read the reparations essay if you're going to read anything. Podcasts like Code Switch, Seeing White, Race Forward. There's a list of a ton of them. You can Google it and find them in a second. Articles, way too many to name, right? So there's something for everybody. Read, watch the Sesame Street CNN town hall and learn how to talk to your own kids about race and racism, right? That's a trustee step. And so the takeaway here is everybody can do something. And that's something maybe as small as like watching the CNN, and it could be as big as like turning over your home or setting the school on fire. Right. Right. <laughs> Metaphorically, not literally. Don't, don't set things on fire. So we are out of time, Martha. Thank you so much for your time. This is so fun to have you. Such an important topic. It was really fun to be able to talk to you and to hear the questions. And I would love to partner again some other time. And Morty, I'm calling you. <laughs>